Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name is Callum Watt uh, and I am here today with Callum and Bradley and Ollie as usual uh, and we'll introduce ourselves in a moment but we're also here with uh, Val Moore who is uh, the women's officer for Lincoln Labour Party, also a city council candidate uh, in Lincoln for this year. And uh, we were going to get Val on initially to talk about the Rights to Food campaign, which she is running in Lincoln. Uh, and we will come on to that during the course of this podcast. But obviously, uh, as you all know, if you have been paying any attention to the news at all this week, uh, you will be aware of the tragic case of Sarah Everett, a 33-year-old woman uh, in London who was uh, allegedly uh, murdered by a police officer uh, of the Metropolitan Police. Uh, we have to be very careful to say uh, alleged, of course, uh, and we're not going to mention their name, but it has sent shockwaves through the country. It's probably one of the biggest reactions to um, a murder I've seen in the in the UK in a very, very long time. And of course, um, it's raised all sorts of questions and it's all about uh, the police, uh, if it's true that she was murdered by a police officer. Um, and also, I think more notably, uh, there's been an outpouring of empathy from the women of the UK and, and indeed the world, I suppose. Um, people have been talking quite openly about having to uh, hold a key between their knuckles and constantly being on edge, not wanting to go out uh, uh, after dark, not being able to go out over after dark. Um, sadly, although this there has been this sharing of experiences um, and... Uh, some platitudes from politicians about making the, the streets safe and so on. Um, we have also at the same time seen hashtag not all men trending on Twitter. So there's been a, a backlash to it as well. Um, so one of the reasons I'm quite pleased that we have Val on, as I say, is that she's the women's officer for Lincoln Labour Party. Um, so she's a good comrade of, of ours. Um but I'm interested to to hear your thoughts, Val. When you when you saw this story, because um, women d d sadly do get murdered quite frequently or killed quite frequently. Um, why do you think? What what was your reaction to to this story sort of breaking and, and becoming? Um, I don't want to trivialize it, but sort of viral, if you like. Um, and have you been surprised by the reaction that it has that it has caused? Um, I think kind of initially when um, Sarah first went missing, I think obviously everybody was concerned for her and, and probably could have predicted the outcome. Um, last year um, in England and Wales, so talking April 19 to March 20, because we haven't got the figures for anything more recent than that at the moment, 188 women um were violently killed um so nine out of ten perpetrators of that are male if i can just make that clear as well so i don't think it came as any great surprise really um when her body was found um i think 
it's always shocking, isn't it, that you can't just go about your daily life. And and I know men are victims of crime as well, and and men are murdered. But when men are murdered, it's it's not headlines from the police to say stay at home. We advise men not to go out. And yet that always seems to be the case. And um, when when women are victims of um, crime in public, and indeed happened in Lincoln, and we had a spate of um, sexual assaults at the end of um, 2019 into 20. And we took that up with the Police and Crime Commissioner and we were due to meet with him. But unfortunately, lockdown put a stop to that. So I'm not surprised by the absolute outrage um, by women. And I feel outraged myself. Um, And as somebody who at 17 years of age, walking through a public park on my way to work, bright sunny day, you know, not in the dark, but 8.30 in the morning, somebody exposed themselves to me. And it was like, I remember that being horrified by that and thinking, why do you think you've got the right to do that? And I reported it to the police because I think it's really important that, um, you know, these things don't just start with somebody just plucking someone from the streets and murdering them. But quite often there's been a lead up to that of, of men that do expose themselves. They get braver, I suppose. Um, and... 13% of um, women are killed by strangers and and the people that perpetrate those crimes are usually also violent towards a partner. So, you know, there's always something that's kind of led up to that. And I understand the perpetrator in the Sarah Everard case um, was being investigated for some indecent exposure claims just three days, two, two indecent exposure claims and um, three days prior to her going missing. So, you know, I think there there are indicators leading up to that. I just think as a woman, um, I'm always cautious when when I'm out at night. Um, I try not to let that stop me going about my daily life because I think I've got as much right to be out and be doing what I want to do as, as anybody has got. But when you plan a night out when you're a woman, you make sure you've got a budget within your budget, a taxi to get home. I'm not sure whether men do that or not. I've never actually asked one. Does that answer your question? I very rarely uh, need to tell. Can you hear me? Can you hear yep. me? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, you want Personally, I very rarely need to take a taxi because I need to live in the centre of town. But I suspect most men probably don't uh, factor that sort of thing. And um, I mean, what I, what I was going to say, what I what I've been thinking about the last couple of days um, is that you know I don't mind saying I'm I'm a bit of an insomniac, so I actually quite enjoy to sort of relax and help me get to sleep i sometimes go for walks late at night um and i've always known that that was a privilege um that that women wouldn't wouldn't be as as comfortable doing that but that this sort of case has sort of focused my mind on what a completely different experience life is being a man compared to to being a woman in in many circumstances because that for me is relaxing like very very rarely sometimes you you might come across um a group of people who are being 
you know, loud or rowdy or someone who looks a bit suspicious and that might make one feel a little bit more tense when you're walking along. But the way women describe uh, walking through the streets at night, uh, you know, it sounds like you're on edge constantly, even when there's nobody around necessarily. Would that be a, a sort of accurate way of uh, of describing it? Yeah, I think that is accurate because you don't know where somebody's going to come from. That it's really um, really puts you on edge if if you're conscious that there are people around. Actually, it it kind of feels a little bit safer in a way when nobody's behind you. Um, I I cross the street. If somebody's walking behind me, I cross to the other side. I can keep them in my eye line. Then, um, what what I'd really appreciate is if you know a man was walking behind me with no intention to do anything untoward, that maybe they could cross the street to the other side. I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to it. I just know that it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Um, you know, the statistics, if you look at the statistics, they're horrific. Um, and, I, and I don't think it gets reported enough. Um, 144,000 women were victims of rape in the last year, and, and only 55 thousand of those were reported to the police um and when you think about those 55,000 reports 1,439 convictions for rape last year so it's almost like men are being given a license to act however they want to there's no appears to be no uh, um deterrent effective deterrent um, it's almost like the establishment is is minimising those crimes um, and giving the message to women that, you know, what, what you suffered doesn't matter to us. And I think that's that's a lot of the reason that women are angry today and, and angry yesterday and have been angry all week. And when you think this is all sandwiched together, but with International Women's Day on Monday and Mother's Day today um, and, and all of this horrific stuff has happened this week. Um, and I think women have felt not able really to celebrate those things because it's been tainted. It's been tainted by some, you know, if you read some of the comments on social media and, and news reports, the, you know, comments from members of the public, that's almost more horrific, especially when those comments are coming from, from other women. And um, yeah, it, it, it's a really difficult situation. Um, I don't know the answer to it, um, except to um, enforce things, um, I suppose, you know, for women to see that justice is done when a crime has been committed against them. Um, and we should expect that, shouldn't we? So your, um, so your approach would be to, you would favour increased sentences? Or don't want to say misbehaviour because it sounds like someone's, you know, ch chucking an elastic an elastic band in class or something. Obviously, it's a lot more you know, serious than that. Um, but do you think how how much is it to do with the way that boys and and, and men are sort of brought up and conditioned to? see women as 
because we get this weird sort of um certainly when i was growing up there's this kind of weird uh almost disingenuousness if that's the right word or or um dissociation i suppose between you have to respect women but at the same time constantly being surrounded by media and a culture which belittles them at the same time um and is it is it is it a problem perhaps with education is this something that can be solved through uh through the school system or you know um how how do we challenge how do we challenge social attitudes uh, in the home as well i mean it's something that kind of occurs to me is that obviously in the last 30 years or so we've had real successes at uh increasing the amount of acceptance of lgbt people obviously there's a huge way to go on that but um there has been some success there so is there something that the the state can do really to to uh foster future generations of men and boys who don't behave in this way and don't enforce an effective curfew on one half of the population definitely there's definitely a need for education without a doubt um and i think it's about equality is what it comes down to for me equality and respect so it doesn't have to be an education necessarily about domestic abuse or about rape or you know those things that um it's quite difficult when you're looking at teaching like primary school children, you have to be really careful with the content of what you teach them, don't you? So, you know, for me, it comes down to just a basic respect um, for other people and to have as much respect for females as you do for males. And I think there's a whole issue around that and, and how, um, you know, children are brought up with the view, but, it, it's everywhere you know if you watch films or you watch tv or you go on the internet it's really difficult to you know ed, ed, formal education in school is actually a quite a small part of what we learn um, you know mostly we learn from our families from people around us from what we see and what we hear so um it, you know that would be a, a really um massive task but it's to start it's definitely a start you know we're concerned about women um, being out on the streets and yet, you know, that's a massive concern. But even when we're not out on the streets, we're still facing um, harassment. Seven in 10 women experience some form of sexual harassment in public. And that actually um, goes up to nine in 10 when that's younger women. Um, so, you know, things like catcalling and, and being groped um just kind of you know those those things as well it's it's not necessarily um as serious as as rape um but you know to stand at a bar and have somebody touch you up um it, you know it's just they that they're the kind of attitudes and the kind of um acts that you know we need to be tackling with the way that you know i think what it needs is for other men to stand up and say that's the way you're behaving is not acceptable um, and for people to to say to children when they're to challenge those behaviours, and that can be done in school, that can be done 
in the family that can be done kind of in the wider um kind of public arena can't it so so that they're not feeling like that that they have the right to do that to somebody because they absolutely don't have that right but you know i i've been in bars and things in my younger years when you get sidled up to by by men and you know that they, they think nothing of having a feel well sorry but this is my body but then when you've got that other group of men that are around them that seem to find that hilarious um you know and and think it's you know a good laugh and let's all have a joke about it it's those kinds of things that that need to be addressed um i think with the whole kind of view of, of women's status i think um in life and it's something that i've i've fought all my adult life you know i've worked in services that support women um and we've all experienced it I, I don't know a woman that hasn't experienced some sort of unwanted attention um, from from males. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, on the education side, we absolutely do need to do that. But from an enforcement point of view, I think that's about the message that it gives to the public and the message that it gives to women that, you know, these crimes will be taken seriously. It's almost like rape's been decriminalised. That's what it feels like as a woman. It feels like decriminalisation of a very serious crime. I think there has been uh, a decline in the number of convictions in recent years. Um, I'm not a, a legal expert. We'd have to get a, a maybe a, a lawyer to to talk to us about you know why that why that is. Um, but I, I mean, how do you? I, uh, the thing that struck me about this case is how much it has touched everyone, um, and uh, and it's it's becoming a real. And again, I don't want to trivialise it at all, but of course, Celebra um, amongst the population at the moment, and um, we might talk, we'll talk about the um, the Labour Party stance on it in a, in a moment, but. One element of that is that their their position on it has changed, um, and an obvious reason why that might be is because half of the parliamentary Labour Party are women these days. Um, you know, half of uh, there's a there's a huge. I I wondered, and um, I said this before we started recording, how many female journalists were in the in the crowd at Clapham Common last night. Um. How is you know the media and the press going to report on this? Because normally their reaction to uh, you know a, a, a social justice protest, if you like, which is essentially what that became that what was meant to be a vigil effectively became a protest um, uh, as a consequence of the actions of the Metropolitan Police. Um, I, do you are you kind of hopeful that that there that there is scope for change just because there are more because there are more women in in public life uh, perhaps um, is that you know has uh, because some progress has been made or uh, is that trying trying to think the best way way of putting it because there has been a, a reaction against it as well. Um, but is there some is there some some hope because of how much traction this case has gained? 
um, and actually because there are women in some positions of power who can actually exercise leverage to do something about this very toxic uh, masculine culture uh, that affects women so badly. Um, you'd hope, wouldn't you? <laughs> I, I think it's fair to say, I think and certainly there are more um, women Labour MPs than there are male MPs, but I'm not sure if you took the whole House of Commons, so the, you know, all parties. I'm not sure that we do have a majority then. I don't think we even have parity. Um, no, there definitely isn't. It's not in, in, in Parliament as a whole. And, you know, I think to have real influence on what what gets passed, what bills get passed, maybe we do need that majority. Um, but it's not helpful when our Home Secretary, who is responsible for law and order and justice, um, is a woman that you think we would be able to rely on. Um, and, I, and I'm not confident we can. Hmm. Uh, Bradley, have you got a question? I I just wanted to to pick up on on the point that Val made earlier about um how how there's a responsibility for men to to call stuff out, you know, when when they see when they see their friends um, doing things or saying things, um, and you know about there's there's a responsibility for us then actually to step up and say something about that. I think there's definitely been times in the past where I've seen something that I or I've heard a, I've heard a friend say something that maybe I'm not I'm not particularly comfortable with, um. But but there's all sorts of awkward social pressures where you know, oh yeah I don't I don't necessarily want to be that guy. I I have a bit of a reputation for being like political, um. You know I, I don't really think it should be a political issue, but it but it is seen in that way. And I think it it's difficult sometimes to call stuff out, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And I think we all we all need to be better at calling stuff out when we see our friends do things. But I think also more than that, I think. I think a lot of self-reflection is, is actually necessary. I think, you know, you see a lot of people, you mentioned in your intro, Callum, about people talking about um, uh, not the, the not all men hashtag. Um, and now, now, obviously, not all men are murderers or, or rapists. No no one's saying that. But I think to, to go out on Twitter and, and proudly declare that you have never done anything that contributes to a culture of discrimination against women, I think, it's a really bold claim to make and I think maybe there there needs to be a bit of self-reflection amongst men of, of the way we've acted in the past the way we act now are there things we do maybe you don't even realize necessarily about how how that affects people but I think there needs to be some time to self-reflect and I think just automatically going for the not all men hashtag it really does the issue disservice and actually we yeah, we, we need to call each other out more, but maybe actually call ourselves out a bit more as well. I did think that people doing that were displaying an awful lot of, or an appalling lack of self-awareness, actually. Um, Ollie? I think there's always the hope, isn't there, that the future generations are, are going to, um, you know, life's going to be better. And I've certainly noticed that in, in loads of things in life, like, um, people's tolerance to racism, for example, and and another kind of discriminations, and, and as um, Callum already pointed out, kind of the LGBT um, plus stuff as well. So, and what, having worked with young people for the last seventeen years, I've definitely seen a change in attitudes 
on all sorts of things. Um, that you know, those changes have kind of happened over the years. I haven't got any statistics on um, numbers of you know ages breakdowns, those kinds of things on perpetrators of sexual violence. But you know, there's quite a lot of statistics around the breakdown um, with ages with the victims of it, and um, I, you know, there, there's quite a lot of stuff out there that highlights. Um, female students being at risk, whether that's on campus or whether that's just a, um, kind of more generally, um, I've not kind of read too much into that. Um, but it would be interesting to know. But yeah, certainly, you know, I think that's where education, a, ch- a change of view, and if you watch some of the TV programmes from the 70s, for example, um, on, on the race side of things as well, but on kind of attitude to women, they're quite appalling. Um, I was a teenager during the um, Yorkshire Ripper years, um, and that was a scary time to be a woman, um, a very scary time. Um, even though I didn't live anywhere near Yorkshire, um, you know, kind of the range of kind of where his victims were. But um, again, even then, a lot of the press coverage was more about the victims being prostitutes than it was about the fact that somebody was. Um, you know, as a serial killer was out there in a, a predatory serial killer killing women, the focus of the press was always about those women's lifestyles. Um, and then there was always the view, if you listen to people talk about it, um, was the view that, you know, that they were somehow deserving of that because of their choice of occupation. So, you know, I, I, I think there's still a long way to go. I'd, I'd be really optimistic, Ollie, that things are going to change Um kind of generationally and, and I think if more education was done in schools and, and in life in general then um, but I think it is you know it comes down to programming of TV things the way that uh, news is reported um, you only need to look at um, things like the Daily Mail and the Sun and the way that that they report crime or and I wonder how many people <clears throat> over this last week are actually um, thinking that it was Sarah's fault that she was abducted and murdered because she shouldn't have been out. I've seen quite a lot of stuff about how she shouldn't have been out because we were in a lockdown. Um, so, you know, that, that there's lots, still a lot to be done, I think, with um, kind of the views that people have around all of that. Wasn't she walking home from work anyway? Not that it matters. Because I suppose no, no one should be assaulted no matter what they're doing. Um she had been to a friend's house, um, and then there was all the talk of why, why was she at her friend's house when um, we're in a lockdown and you're not supposed to be visiting people. Nobody said she went in the friend's house, I and mean, I don't know the circumstances. But, you know, it, but again, the focus is on that rather than the focus being on the fact that somebody has taken this young woman's life. Mm. It misses the point somewhat, doesn't it? Um, Callum. I, I just wanted to pick up on the uh, value you spoke about the uh, reporting of, of um, sexual assaults amongst other crimes. And um, from my experience as the community officer and the student union, that's one of the biggest things we've been trying to work on in actually informing people that, you know, you can report something when you have been sexually assaulted, when you've been 
uh, followed home when you feel unsafe on the streets. But I think that there is a there is a cultural issue. I think it's almost expected, and I, I think this has come to the surface. Um, certainly in this case, asking, you know, oh, why were you in that area at that time of night? Surely it, it turns into victim blaming. Um, and I think that that's disgusting because victims wholly should not be blamed for being sexually assaulted. Um, but we do have this culture problem. I think that it's something that needs to be addressed. And even it's even evident in, in my generation. Um, I, I went to an all boys school at secondary school and there is still this toxic masculinity this objective objectification of, of women looking at them as as an object not as a a person as, as a person with feelings and control over their own body and i think that this is something that we still need to fight against um i share your your optimism that i think that it certainly got better but it's it's certainly there in 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 the dark corners of society and i think that we've got a, a big battle on our hands but certainly having that confidence to be able to report crimes against yourself is, is got to be the first step that we got to get there. And I'm sure we'll speak about it, but having confidence in the police to deal with those crimes and to take them seriously is, is something that we, we need to build up again, because I think confidence in the police is, is at a, is at a low at the moment for sure. Definitely. And, and I think, you know, some of the underreporting, um, when there's been surveys done of of um, women's, you know, I mean, the, the fact that they they know there were um, uh, 144,000 victims of rape, but only 55,000 of those were reported to police. That's the Office of National Statistics doing surveys of women and finding out their views of things. So, you know, we know that underreporting is a massive issue, and I think that is about confidence in the police, confidence in being taken seriously but also embarrassment, you know, and and wondering, you know, women will always think, what did I do wrong? Could I have done something differently? Because, you know, when society's telling us don't dress that way, don't walk that way, don't go that, don't go into that area, don't drink too much, don't um take any drugs, you know, all of the, all of those things. Um you know, when we're hearing that kind of constantly being um they're the messages that we're receiving then it's it's not really surprising. Um, that they're reluctant to report. And just picking up on, um, it was only kind of in the late 1800s, uh, yes, into the start of the 20th century, women were actually um, men's chattels, legally, officially. We were the chattels of men. Um, And the law in this country said that you could beat your wife as long as the stick that you you used was no um, thicker than your thumb. And that's where the rule of thumb comes from. So historically in this country, women have been the property of men. Um, And I think they're the kind of attitudes and and the shift. And you'd think that after all this time, people wouldn't think like that. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Definitely some education. Okay, and it's interesting that obviously we're still talking about the police because that moves us on to uh, our next topic which is uh, the police crime sentencing and courts bill 2021 Um, and this this is a controversial piece of legislation which predates 
what happened, uh, the, what we've just been talking about, primarily motivated by the Black Lives Matter protests, which took place almost exactly a year ago uh, and since, of course. Um, I was just reading the uh, background to it on the on the government's website. Um, it says, freedom of, of assembly and freedom of expression are vital rights that the United Kingdom fully supports. The rights of an individual to express their opinion and protest are a cornerstone of our democratic society. There's a grammatical error there on the government's website. That's good, isn't it? Um, and so all good so far. Um, but it then says, uh, also it says, uh, there is and will remain a balance to be struck between the rights of the protester and the rights of individuals to go about their daily business. However, there are instances where individuals as a protest behave in a way that causes unjustifiable disruption or distress to others. In recent years, we have seen a significant change in protest tactics, which have led to disproportionate amounts of disruption. The current legislation the police use to manage protests, the Public Order Act 1986, was enacted over 30 years ago. The Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police Service has called on the government to update this ageing legislation to allow the police to safely and effectively manage highly disruptive protests we see today. The Home Office has therefore engaged with police chiefs and commissioned Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary and Fire and Rescue Services to conduct an inspection into the policing of protests to understand what needs to be to ensure that the police can safely manage highly disruptive protests while preserving citizens' freedoms of expression and assembly. The government is proposing several changes to the law which will improve the police's ability to proactively manage the most disruptive protests and provide punitive, punitive outcomes that reflect the seriousness of offences committed by protesters. One of the most egregious examples that's been brought up is the potential uh, um, by codifying a common law provision of uh, public nuisance. Uh, one of the codifications is that you can be potentially, for, for uh, vandalising a statue, you can potentially be locked up for 10 years if this passes. In the context of what we've just been talking about in the, in the previous story, we obviously saw hundreds of women turn out on Clapham Common for this very serious issue. Uh, the police tried to stop it uh, and we could see uh, women being bound up, being handcuffed and, ta handcuffed and taken away by male officers. And we can see not, not, that's not just a PR disaster, it's tone deaf, isn't it? But it's not the, it's not the first time we've seen this sort of thing happen. We've seen uh, another hashtag that was, of course, uh, trending was uh, Charles de Menezes, for example. You know, the Met Police have a serious track record of abusing their power. Uh, 
um, not just at times like this, but so, so frequently, especially when we're talking about protests. And in response to the Black Lives Matter protests last year, and also um, by the Extinction Rebellion protests uh, the year before that, um, where there were very effective uh, attempts at blocking roads and obviously to uh, draw attention to the, the climate crisis. We, I think, need to be very worried that this is we are becoming uh, an authoritarian state. And I, I was very pleased to note that uh, the Labour Party had switched its uh, stance. I think they were originally going to abstain on this bill, but I think this morning, uh, or possibly last night, they, they shifted their position. Um, so they are actually going to vote against it, I believe. Um, which is a relief considering last uh, or a, a few months ago, not that long ago, actually, it was only a few weeks ago, they decided to uh, vote uh, to, to not oppose the spy cops bill, which was effectively giving immunity to undercover cops uh, who, who committed uh, crimes in the line of uh, what they were doing for for the police service. Um, how worried... I mean, it's, it's still probably going to pass, though, because obviously the Conservatives do ha have a majority. Uh, how worried do we need to be um, that uh, if this passes, that we, we are not going to have the ability to, to, to protest in future? Callum. It's it's very much if you look at the the government's justification for this bill, you can see that they're worried about this this so-called new wave of, of protest. We know that Thatcher clamped down on unions because they were one of the, the, the main legitimate forms of protest and fighting for rights and changes in communities and workplaces. And now we see with these new grassroots movements, the government is scared that actually their message is getting through. I think obviously the, the XR protests at points were controversial, but they certainly got people talking and they certainly raised the issues, the important issues of climate change for in, in the public sphere, but also so people in parliament and people in government actually recognise that we have got a climate crisis here and now. Um, when you look at some of the wording in this bill, it, it, it seeks to, it uses very vague terms at, at points. It talks about causing unease to the community and disrupting a community. So that's effectively saying that if a protest is going to go ahead and you don't have the say-so of, of the powers that be, then effectively you're breaking the law and causing unease and disruption in a community. I think that's outrageous because... A protest is meant to raise an issue by breaking from the status quo. You're meant to have a, you know, you have a procession or a march. You have a, a um, maybe a sit-in protest. And those are completely legitimate forms of protest. And I think the XR protests, again, were legitimate because they were raising an important issue that was in the public interest. And they have their right to say that and have their right to raise that issue. So I think that this is a clear and very conscious move by the government to shut down legitimate rights of, to protest and to ensure that 
grassroots protest movements do not have the power that they currently do. And I don't think that people are going to listen to it. If you look at people who staunchly believe in the right to protest, and I'm one of them, do you seriously think that people are not going to go to a march because it's been declared uh, illegal? You only got to look at the vigil. A vigil yesterday was cancelled by the police and yet people still turn up. Members of royalty even turned up because you cannot shut down people's right to have a voice. You cannot shut down people's right to protest. And you certainly cannot shut down people's right to mourn somebody that's been murdered. Yeah, and, and credit where it's due, props to uh, uh, Kate Middleton for actually showing up to the uh, to, to Clapham Common. Um, Bradley? I, I think first thought on this really is... Um, what 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 does the government see coming down the road um that they that they feel the need to to get this legislation in place now um i think i think protest um is going to become increasingly common over the next decade or so uh, as uh, as we continue you know if the tories stay in power or you know, the way i feel at the moment to honestly even if um Starmer gets in I think we're going to increasingly see governments flailing in their response to crises um, we've seen it with Covid um, and it's led to, to tens of thousands more deaths than, than were necessary um, I think we're going to continue to see governments uh, completely unable to respond to the crisis of climate change um, and and political systems being captured by inequality and, and, and the power imbalance that creates so increasingly, protest becomes more and more the option that people prefer at that point. So I, I, I think a version of that story is probably evident to, to the government, and they and they want to be able to control these protests more more tightly if they can. I think from my experience of protest, it's the police never particularly struggle to disrupt protests if they want to, uh, and they they never they never find it difficult to find a pretense to to arrest protesters if they if they need one. So I'm not entirely convinced that that we need um, you know additional powers or, or or whatever it is that this review ends up proposing. Um, I'm not particularly convinced we need that. I don't think police struggle at the moment to 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 deal with protesters if if they want to. Um, and actually, if there are places where they struggle to deal with protesters, I think on on balance is probably a good thing. I think it should in general be difficult for law enforcement to shut down protests. Uh, where where they're you know non-violent peaceful protest, I I think it it should err on the side of it being quite hard to justify arresting protesters. It should be quite hard to disrupt a, a lawful protest. Um, so yeah, I'm not convinced this is needed. Um, and I and I think I think it will increasingly become a problem um, as as the decade goes on. Because I think we're I think we're in for a more turbulent political times. I think mass protests are, are going to be a, a key tool in that and um, that it looks like the government's trying to head off and i i think that a lot of the the legislation seems to be about preventing people from causing disruption to everyday life but i think as xr sort of proved you know if you don't do that sort of thing 
no one's going to pay attention to you. I mean, that the only reason they got headlines. There are there are protests almost daily in London in normal times that don't get any media coverage, but XR did because of the tactics that that they used. Um, so it's kind of ironic, well, not ironic. You can draw a direct line that the government's now responding to that by trying to effectively make that sort of thing illegal. Um, and yet we we need that sort of protest really. In order to progress, I I would argue. Val, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Bradley. I I don't see that it's a necessary piece of legislation. They've got powers in place already, and and I think this is the sign of a very weak government that that is, um, you know, things are out of their control. And when you look at the XR protests in London last year, um, and they brought that city to a standstill. Um, and the Black Lives Matters protests, and you know, you have to kind of wonder who who further up is pulling some strings or has got the ears of the government that were, you know, are not happy about the way things are going because you know those statues that were pulled down and and taken away, you know, some people would see that as an act of vandalism, and um, others would see it as you know um, the right thing to do because. They weren't going to be removed in any, you know, any other way. I can kind of quite see that that might be the outcome for the Margaret Thatcher statue when that eventually gets put up. But we'll see where that goes. I, I think it's a it's a fear tactic as well, isn't it? You know, to say to somebody, you could face ten years in prison and, and to up the amounts of the fines. It is undoubtedly going to put some people off protesting where they maybe would have done before because they would be concerned about their jobs, they'd be concerned about their liberty. So I think it will have some effect from that that degree, but it's it's not going to stop protests. Um, I think when you get the larger protests, I think you're right that, you know, on, on the whole, police managed them really well. I've not been to a protest in Lincoln where it hasn't felt all under control, but then they haven't been massive, have they? You know, and I think when we've had the very big protests, and particularly in London, I don't think the police have have handled those situations very well at all um, and what that's resulted in is more crime and disorder um, and then the, the government being able to say you know to have what they feel is justifiable reasons for slapping on more powers that you know that that's the way that I see it. I think I think there is um, I, I think actually it's something important that you pointed out there um, is that there is a huge difference actually between uh, the attitude of the police, generally speaking, in you know the provinces, so to speak, places like Lincoln. Not to say that Lincoln is Lincolnshire police are, are perfect by any means. Um, they're still a legitimate force um, and have all of the uh, attendant problems that go with police for the police policing in the UK. Um, but the I think that the Met is a is a particularly egregious example the extreme of almost everything um that we think is wrong with the, the with the police um in part because they're there to protect the government right so they've got a little bit more of a a free hand to act um and they act in a much more uh aggressive manner than they might do than they might do otherwise um, if they were if they were policing a, a protest elsewhere, um, you know, and I was talking to um, you know someone who I organise the 
2016 vigil in the uh, wake of the Orlando massacre um, a few years ago. Uh, I think it was in 2016. Um, and, you know, we, we liaised with the police on that occasion. And uh, you could see there were a couple of police officers there just to sort of monitor it. Uh, there was also um, we our um, the, the chief steward that we uh, that we had working that day um, also uh, managed to spot uh, the undercover police officer who was also monitoring the poli- uh, the, the protests uh, simply because he had his earpiece in very visibly, um, which uh, which he found amusing. Um, because he was quite surprised when our when our chief of security went, went to shake him by the hand and introduce himself, um, knowing exactly who he was. Uh, so it's a so it, it's a different world because you can't see that happening. I can't see that happening down in London. I've been on many protests down in London. Um, people may know I was involved in the storming of the. Millbank Tower. I didn't make it to the roof, but I was one of the first people in the building. Um, and initially, because the police weren't prepared for it, um, everything was quite calm and and peaceful. You just had some slightly uh, surprised-looking officers lining up outside the building, trying to stop anyone else from coming in. Um, but then sort of about, I would say, half an hour after that initial incident. Because I, I remember the at, the atmosphere initially was quite jovial. You know, there were people kind of lying around on the sofas in the waiting room, waving to the people outside, and people taking pictures, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there was actually uh, a, a large group of us who went, okay, we've made our point. We'll we'll leave now. You know this this is this is good enough. So the building we had stormed was basically the headquarters of the Conservative Party. Um, but then what happened was this this van drew up, um, and a bunch of police officers in heavy riot gear then turned up and lined up outside the building. And I I, I was out by this point, so I saw this so saw this from the outside, and the mood in the crowd instantly changed instantly changed suddenly you're facing what is effectively a paramilitary force and from having a situation which was de-escalating at that point suddenly it, it ramped up massively um and obviously it ended up with the the building being trashed and you know and and everything that you and all you saw on the cameras of course was was the aftermath that the interesting thing was that uh, when the Daily Mail put their uh, story up about it afterwards, they actually had to switch the comments off on their article because whereas the article was ripping into these sort of uh, student anarchists, they actually found that even their readership was more sympathetic to the to the anarchists than they were within, uh, the, the, to, uh, to the Conservative Party. They felt that they had brought it upon themselves. Um but no, exactly. The, the, whereas the police were sort of caught on the hoof on, on that occasion, not, not only can they be extremely violent and they don't seem to have a problem being violent, that the next student protest was charged with cavalry. You know, that, that was their response to it. They actually threw horses at people and they've done that since as well. I think we're the only uh, Western European country that still uses cavalry. 
uh, in order to suppress process. And then I'm thinking of the royal weddings in the in the years following that. There were a number of people who were locked up before, preemptively before the process even happened. Um, so yeah, I think Bradley's point is absolutely spot on. They have sweeping powers to deal with protests in this country. Uh, and I think it would be, really, this is a, an attempt to uh, try and put people, good people who are going to stand up for good causes off from trying to stick their necks out for those good causes. And ultimately, that is a real threat to our democracy uh, and a real threat to civil society. Uh, and I really hope that, uh, obviously, we now know that Labour is going to oppose it. I seriously, seriously hope that uh, maybe some Tories with a conscience conscience will uh, stand up against it as well and uh, will resist it in the Lords and do everything that we can uh, as a movement, as a Labour movement, as progressive movements in this country to oppose this uh, egregious attack on our civil liberties. Next story. So, uh, well, as I say, Val, I think we initially were going to get you on to talk about uh, the uh, food campaign in Lincoln. Uh, shall we talk about that now? A little bit more, slightly more positive uh, issue that, than, uh, or, or slightly more positive campaign than perhaps we've, we've been talking about so far, um, if that's okay. Um, yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah. So, so, go on. Go on. Go on. <laughs> what's what's what motivated you to start this, and what and what are you doing? Okay, so um, Councillor Helena Mayor and myself um, went for a socially distanced walk in the Arboretum, um, and we were both talking about how we were quite disillusioned at the moment because we weren't able to be active, um, and we weren't able to get out and do street stalls and protests and all those kinds of things and um, just becoming a little bit disheartened with the whole thing. So we, um, what we did was we, we tried to focus ourselves locally and, you know, what can we do locally? Because there's probably not a lot that we can do nationally at the moment. So um, a few days later, the schools went into lockdown and we realised that there was these um, awful food packages that were being handed out. Um and the government completely got that wrong yet again. Um, and Helena did a bit of talking to people and came across the Right to Food campaign. So there's an MP in Liverpool, Dar West Derby, called Ian Byrne, quite a recent MP, actually. I didn't realise until I had a look at his, looked into him a little bit more. I think he was elected in 2019. Um, so, yeah, uh, he is one of the founding members of Fans Supporting Food Banks, um, which started up in um, Manchester and Liverpool. So he is on the Liverpool side, I think, and then a guy called um, Dave Kelly is on the Everton side, so Everton Blue Union, and, and Ian Byrne is um, a kind of founding member of Spirit of Shankly. So they came together as a city and set up the Fan Supporting Food Banks network and it's a grassroots network um, and I think a lot of money has been diverted from season ticket um, purchases into supporting food banks 
And I know when the um, Sky and, and channels like that were trying to charge extortionate rates to watch um, Premiership football during lockdown when, um, you know, the the matches haven't been open to fans, they've put their, instead of um, paying for those pay-per-view matches, they've instead given the money to food banks. So there's a whole movement happening there anyways, and, and they came up with the Right to Food campaign. And basically, um, the idea of the campaign is to get enshrined into UK law the right to food for every human being in this country. And that should be our right, shouldn't it? You know, at the end of the day, it's a basic human right for us to be fed. Um, and since then, Liverpool and Manchester have become right to food cities. Um, and that's what we want to achieve for Lincoln through this campaign. So we've set up our right to food Lincoln campaign. Um, and we're almost at the point where we're ready to launch. We've still got a few little bits that need to be done on that. So um, Helena is proposing to take a motion um, through Lincoln City Council um, for the for Lincoln to become a right to food city. And we're asking people um, to sign the petition um, that was set up by Ian Byrne and is widely available on social media or just by searching the government petitions um, to write to their MP um, to get them to sign Ian Byrne's early day motion on the right to food. And then when we get to the point where we launch to um, sign Lincoln's right to food pledge, um, and that will put some weight behind, um, you know, what we want to do going forward. Um, Michael Gove commissioned um, Henry Dimbleby, who's the founder of the Leon restaurant chain, um, to write the national food strategy. And Marcus Rashford is also involved in that. So another thing that people can do is to um, write to um, the national food strategy and ask them to put the right to um, food on a legislative footing um, within their recommendations to the government when that comes to them. I think it's been delayed because of COVID. Um, I think it's due to be sometime this year. So kind of locally, um, there's been a massive increase in food bank use um, in during COVID, and I don't think anybody would be surprised by that really. Um, but it it had gone up by 103% during the pandemic. Um, and yeah, and whilst people are getting a slight increase in their universal credit um, because of COVID, that was due to end at the end of March and the government have now extended that to September. But even so, when September comes around, those people are still going to lose um, that income and they become dependent upon it now. It feels really unfair to take something away considering they've, there hasn't been an increase in benefits for probably about the last four years anyway. But it's not just about school children and free school meals, and it's not just about unemployed people. Majority of people who claim universal credit in this country are from working households, and they are not being paid enough money by their employers to support their families. When you have to make a choice between heating your own home and feeding your children, that should never happen in the 21st century in a civilised country. That's one of the fourth richest countries in the world. And um, so, you know, that there's the kind of fundamental stuff around it all as well, isn't there? That everybody should have that right to food. 
it's fantastic work being done in Lincoln at the moment. The Arboretum Cafe, the St. Swithin's um, group that have, you know, have been handing out food parcels to people. But what we need to remember within it as well is the elderly and food poverty amongst the elderly. And we're trying to get some stats on that. It's been quite difficult to do that. So it's about everybody. You know, it's it's not just about um, free school meals for children. And I think that that's um, obviously been the focus for most of the social media coverage and quite rightly so. Um, but we want to move it on from that and to look at it in, in a broader sense. So that's the campaign. Sounds fantastic. I, I can't think of anything more important than having a right to food is astonishing really isn't it that we uh, we as a society don't take that as a given yeah um so i i've been for the last year working as part of the st swithin's project so i i know about the demand and i think that actually that the right to food is so important as something that we we should look at as a society and as a, as a labor movement as well I think it's our responsibility to bring this forward. Um, I'd, I'd just like to get your your take on the fact that this is now we're now at a point where charities are doing all they can, and we really need governments to step up now. We need politicians and legislation to fill in because there's only so much charity can do, and certainly uh, with people losing their jobs, um, we can't continue to rely on small grants from local government because that's all the money they have and from people that are struggling themselves to take money out of their pocket to give to these charities. So I, I, I applaud the, the campaign and I think that Lincoln absolutely should have a right to food um, status and I think that we should absolutely be fighting for that. But uh, I'd like to get your sort of take on after it gets passed in Parliament, whether we see it going on a local level. Um, so councils being given more funding so they can really ensure local people are are um, are supported or whether it's going to be a more of a, a centralised NHS style national uh, food service network. Yeah, I've, I've not read all the kind of findings of the national food strategy and it'd be interesting to see what's actually in that when they do present it. I think it's, for me, it's also about, um, it's one of those checks that are in place when you deliver a new service or you commission a new service or you uh, put funding into something to that it's one of those check boxes so you know like kind of when you do a um, kind of an equalities assessment when when you're an impact assessment when you're setting up a new project and you're making sure that it covers the needs of all those people in the equality strands it's so universal credit as an example it's paused at the moment because of the pandemic, but it will go back to the five-week wait at the start of um, the claim for universal credit. If the government accepts that there is a right to food, then they can't have a five-week wait because that five-week wait means that people have no income in order to buy food. So it could fundamentally change the legislation that is brought in that there would have to be a consideration for people's right to food within it. I mean, I think, and, and the other thing for me, it's about if, if we had a universal basic income, then there wouldn't be any need for um, benefits and there wouldn't be any need for charity to be providing these essential items to people. 
we've become way too reliant on charity. The government know that if they don't do something, the goodwill of the people will do it for themselves. And they've always kind of relied upon that, haven't they? Which is why they've gotten away with not increasing benefits for the last four years. Doesn't mean the cost of everything hasn't gone up. You know, the cost of living, you don't get your gas, electricity and water cheaper because you're on benefits than if you're not on benefits. You don't get a discount on your TV license or any of those things. Um, You know, people are having to live with the same income that they had four years ago. Um, and the cost of everything goes up. Um, goodness no, only knows what the cost of Brexit is going to be and how that's going to impact on our food costs and things like that. So I think it becomes increasingly important. But I think it, from you know they need to be serious about how they fund local government as well, don't they, and local services. Um, but yeah, this is something that needs to be just our right within within UK law. It says that we have a right to food. I'm just going to see if I can get Ollie in first. I can see Callum wants to come back. I'm also conscious of time, um, but we'll we'll try and get Ollie in first, and we'll. Are you there, Ollie? Can Can you hear us? No. Okay, I think I think he's got. A poor internet connection, which is a shame. Um, I'll let Callum come back, and then we'll. Um, I think we'll uh, ask Val to sort of sum up, and uh, and we'll, we'll finish there, um, if that's all right. Callum. Yeah, I think I think Val's hit it on the head. Really, we, we're so reliant on charity. It's um, it's very much. A, I think it charity is great, and the people volunteering for charities in local community groups their their contribution to society should never be played down but ultimately it is the responsibility of a government to look after its people and to enshrine, enshrine things like food a right to food a right to healthcare, a right to education in in law and at the moment they're failing in that in that uh, in that role and i think that one of the the, the important things that we always uh, forget about is that yes Food banks are available for people, but there is a, a section of, of people that choose not to go to a food bank or to ask for help because society sees it as, as, a, as a bad thing. It's, it's a stigma to ask for food or ask for help for society because this is, the, this is how society is portrayed, um, how we should all live. We should all be very individual and self-reliant and uh, support ourselves and stand on our own two feet. But the reality of the system we live in is that people are being conned. People are not getting a good wage for the, the work they put in. Anybody that's in work should get a, a fair wage that puts food on the table and gives them a comfortable night, a, a comfortable life, not just living from paycheck to paycheck. So it's it's very much a fundamental and we, we should be standing up for, for a right to food and, and a right to a number of other things. We've spoken about universal basic services as well as, as another thing on, on this podcast that, that I know I'm very passionate about, that people have a right to a house, a right to food, a right to education, a right to feel safe on the streets. Um, and the government's currently failing on, on a number of those. So absolutely right, of course. Uh, interesting you mentioned universal basic services as well as a 
perhaps a whole other debate to be had about uh, universal uh, basic services and universal basic income, whether you should have one or the other or both, um, which we will probably cover at some point. But uh, we've been talking for over an hour um, about these topics. It's been probably one of our best podcasts. Um, so I just want to thank Val profusely for, for coming on and, and talking to us about these extremely important issues just very very quickly if you could you sum up val uh what do people need to do uh to sign the petition uh, that you mentioned earlier and also take action can you summarize that very quickly what people can do if they're listening to support the campaign yeah so the the petition is on the government petition website it's the right if you if you google right to food um government petition then i'm sure that you will it will come up and either that or search for ian Byrne, and he's got lots of links on his social media to that um the site signing right into your mp and if that's carl mccartney then i'm not sure how far we're going to get with it but i i still think that shouldn't deter us from writing to him to ask him to sign ian burns um early day motion um on the right to food um, write to the National Food Strategy, and you can you can just Google them to get the email address for that. To ask them to put right to food on the on a legislative footing in their recommendation their recommendations for a legislative footing within the right to food strategy, if that makes sense. Um, and then when we launch and we get our um, pledge out to people, please sign it, please share it, please get it back to us. Um, we're hoping to have a little bit of a poster that people can put in their window um, if they want to, um, to show that they support the campaign. But we'll be sending that out to businesses, to individuals, um, as many people as we possibly can across the city. So please do share that. Uh, we do have an email address, which is righttofoodlincoln at gmail.com. If anybody wants to get in touch with us, if they feel that they can help with the campaign in any way. Um, so yeah, that sums up the campaign. But I think I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to send Boris Johnson Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, I'm not sure that whether he learnt about that at Eton or not. I'm not sure if it's on the curriculum, but I'm going to send that to him as an action from today. Thank you. Very good idea. So thank you once again, um, Val, for coming on and and speaking to us. Um, and uh, it's also a goodbye from Callum. Yeah, thank you all for listening. It's been a great podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And Bradley? Yeah, thanks, folks. Uh, thanks to Val as well for, for coming on. It's been a really good discussion. Cheers. Great. And uh, stay safe, everyone, as usual. Uh, remember to keep sticking up for yourselves. And uh, we will... See you next time.